welcome to All Sphere in Love and Film, a movie review podcast where we talk about films, our relationship to films, and uh, review our DVD collection from A to Z. I'm Laura. And I'm Ryan. And this week we'll be covering Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. An absolute classic. I mean, I've got to agree, it is an absolute classic. Uh, this is one of Ryan's favourite films, so uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us your history with the film and provide a summary? Well... I first saw this film when I was about 16 years old. My mom uh, decided to show me it because she thought I was adult enough to watch it, you know, because it is a very cerebral film. Um, she sat me down, we watched it together, and I remember it was, I remember just looking at it being like, this is really cool looking, but I don't know what the hell is going on. But um, <laughs> Since then, uh, like I've rewatched it countless times, and it's it's honestly one of my favorite films of all time. Laura, when was your first time watching it? I did not watch this film until we watched it for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I kind of figured. I didn't have a family that was into sci-fi. I mean, like me and my sister were the family geeks. My mom was just not into it at all. It's you know we just never watched films like this when I was younger. Yeah, my mom is an absolute sci-fi geek, and she re like. Every single quintessential sci-fi book she has. And I, I'm glad I was able to kind of like, as I was growing up, kind of pick through her collection and kind of really ingratiate myself into the sci-fi genre. Oh, and I am so envious for that because as an adult, it is one of the things that I'm most interested in. And what was really great for me about this film was seeing all of the kind of, um, I have seen references to this film in more things than I can count. But because this film was obviously so early, this is the first one, you know. I'm I'm thinking, oh, this is referencing this episode of this TV show I've seen, but actually it's it's the TV show that's referencing this. This film stands up so well, despite the fact that it came out in 1968. It, like, the, the special effects are still, like, quite relevant even now when we have CGI that works so, so well. I mean, yeah, I was... My mind was absolutely blown, like, kind of seeing this. I would not have said it was made in 1968 at all. I would, like, it, it was absolutely mind-blowing, the kind of special effects and everything that was used. However, as impressed as I was by this film, I would say I think it only gets a 5 or 6 out of 10 for me. Really? I, I think that just for what it means to modern-day cinema and modern sci-fi, I've got to give it a 9 out of 10. Like... While the story I find a bit slow, it still is such a masterpiece of cinema and, and storytelling, well, visual storytelling. I could be convinced to go as high as a seven um, for the reasons that you've just stated, but we'll go into why later. I have my issues with the plot. <laughs> Let's move on with, uh, and kind of give a, a brief summary of the overall uh, film. Okay, so to summarise the film, uh, this is a short summary from Wikipedia. It says, An imposing black structure provides a connection between the past and the future in this enigmatic adaptation of a short story by revered sci-fi author Arthur C. Clarke. When Dr. Dave Bowman, played by Keir Dulea, and other astronauts are sent on a mysterious mission, their ship's computer system, HAL, begins to display increasingly strange behaviour, leading up to a tense showdown between man and machine that results in a mind-bending trek through space and time. Uh, I that summary does like hit all of the kind of really hard important points, points for that and um of course HAL 9000 iconic oh. absolutely iconic absolutely and 
my mom actually told me a little uh, bit of trivia. The uh, Hal is one letter off of IBM. Notice that? Is that on purpose? Yes, it is. Oh, uh, yeah. They, uh, they were sponsored by IBM in part, but IBM didn't want to be shown to be evil effectively. Oh, so. Okay. So uh, he he changed the letters uh, slightly, so it uh, it would it wouldn't ca- ruffle any corporate feathers. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, um, as this film is clearly split into four distinct sections or movements, as as Kubrick put it. Um, let's start with the very first movement, which is the Dawn of Man, which. I think you will definitely have some issues with. Oh yeah, and I've got some things I, to say. <laughs> I'm as I mean, we're both archaeologists, so uh, I think we definitely have a little bit of a bias on on uh, on our issues with this. Well, yeah, I mean, my study background is in human evolution, so but um, I want to kind of step back a little bit from the the human evolution stuff for now. Um, just to talk about this film's relationship to classical music. I mean, as you were just saying, he splits it into movements as you would a piece of classical music. And it's a film that uses classical music uh, very predominantly. And it opens with that iconic kind of music and that iconic scene. And it, I found it very stirring. I mean, there's nothing happening, but they create such a sense of expectation. I was on the edge of my seat. It's absolutely beautiful. What were your kind of thoughts on that? I honestly feel that this film was made with kind of that that musical mindset uh, going in. Like, uh, it's it fits all the all the main parts of a of a of a song. Really, you've got like the slow beginning, the slow pick, uh, like the like the gradual increasing of intensity, and like a nice slow cadence, and then an increased intensity and then kind of a gigantic climax that actually really, really does fit a lot of the music that is used within the film itself. Yeah. And it it's, it's beautifully done. I mean, if you kind of look at this film as uh, a piece of art rather than a story, it's, it's truly, truly beautiful, truly marvelous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, let's get into this, um, the dawn of man. So that comes up as a title on the screen as we're, uh, as we're watching. Yeah. And I was like, is this a flashback? Is this the ultimate flashback? Because it's going back to the furthest point it possibly can. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that is kind of what, like how you could definitely construe that. It does feel very, it sets the whole scene. It sets the whole film up for kind of what you what to expect. Does it though? I was oh. as a first time watcher. I've got to say, I was really confused as like, oh, it's a space odyssey, but we're getting ten minutes of of prehistory. I guess not. And from a story point of view, I was more thinking in terms of like just the pure. It it, it felt like a deep dive just going into that first scene. So it, it, like it, like it, it feels like you're kind of just being thrown into something. You don't really have time to really take stock of. Like you, like the preconceptions that you have going into the film are immediately just tossed away, and you're just kind of you're thrust right in, into into something into the you film. Don't yeah, and, and that's what kind of think I think makes this film the film's opening so great is it really makes you immerse yourself. It, I guess that's what makes it so immersive, and that's that's why it has I, you questioning straight from the off. And also, I guess it it it's making this kind of point about everything is everything that happens throughout this film is relevant 
like since the beginning of time everything is linked from that early point which is a very interesting point to make I mean I don't know if it completely hit for me but I can see from that perspective sort of what they were trying to do yeah I mean you can see like within the story this does really build up the story um I mean, I think it could have been a little bit shorter, this part, but I do think that as it does immerse you so much into the story, I I, I wouldn't cut any of the bits. Like, there's nothing I could see that could have been cut that would have really... Yeah, no, I, I do see what you mean. It's a very, it's it's an interesting kind of small, like, vignette. And it's it's making this point of, like, oh, everything is linked to, you know, man from the dawn of time right up into the future. This is all linked together. But... I, again it just like it didn't especially hit for me yeah um that's very maybe fair. they could have introduced the scary door sooner uh-huh. and it would have but i mean I, I think the point the the whole point of the scary door as you put it it or uh in every every other everybody else calls it the monolith sorry it's just like <laughs> i i've referred to it as the scary door through my whole notes i'm we are huge futurama nerds in this house so it's the scary door it's what it is yeah that, that's that's fair um, I mean, I th- it's really just the whole point of this first section is to set up the monolith's influence on humanity and 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 how the whole point of the monolith is, was to show its influence on humanity and the subsequent evolution uh, technologically, so to speak. Okay. See, I again because the scary door is is in it's referenced throughout the rest of the film, but it doesn't really do anything. So it. It just seemed to me that there, all the things that happen around the scary door just could have, like, the the direct influence of the scary door, or the monolith, as you put it, isn't really explicit to me. And maybe that's because I've only seen it once and I kind of wasn't taking it all, you know, in in that much detail. But it was just like, it just seemed to just be there and it was strange. Yeah. I mean, when the monolith shows up for the eight people, it does, you can tell it, it really does... It, may, it does make you question what the hell is going on. It does discombobulate you. But, like, you like I guess, hit this film, I don't think you're, you're meant to, like, it's meant to be more of a subjective viewing experience rather than an objective viewing experience like most Film, uh, like most other films are i think i think you're meant to like take you're, you're supposed to perceive meaning in each movement in your own way i don't think there is any good clear reading of this of any part of this film yeah i can definitely see what you mean with that i mean i think that's a very kubrick stamp to put on things oh, to be absolutely. honest and i think that's why he chooses the source material that he chooses um but can we just step away from the scary door for a second because i just I'm not going to go into this because I could honestly make an entire episode of this podcast just about this. But I think my issue is not with 2001 A Space Odyssey. It is an issue with 1968. The the portrayal of these proto-humans, these hominids. I did, I did put in my notes, I was like, uh, what hominid am I looking at? I needed to know because that is, is, it's nothing. It's an ape person. It's not. Yeah, I mean, I will say the costuming was great. Those kind of moving masks with the the like lips and the fangs and everything being able to be so expressive were really like top notch. But um, it's the I guess the whole point of this movement is to predicate this idea that man is innately aggressive. This ape person finds a large bone, comes up with the idea of using it as a club, and the first thing 
it does is start enacting wanton destruction and then hunting down other ape people. Yeah. And I'm I'm that I that is such an antiquated view of human evolution and it's ah, it's just not right. It's it's just wrong. Yeah. Like it's uh, and it, I I guess a film that's meant to be so cerebral like not even questioning that just going no straight up men, man are bad and have always been bad since the dawn of man. It, it just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it, it is an issue of, like, uh, of the time, really, more than anything else. Like, they've, I, I, or I'm not actually sure how much Kubrick researched, I mean, I, I because Kubrick, I'm sure he researched the shit out of it, but I don't know how much he got into the anthropology of it, you know? Well, he may well have done, because the, that's why I say I think my problem is with 1968, because this was the view of, of early humanity um, that was, that was popularized in, in the kind of, uh, in this kind of time period was this idea that no man like man evolved to to enact war man evolved to be aggressive um but i do want to just take a quick sidebar about the uh the appearance of the monolith kind of in amongst all these apes and there's this kind of like zoomed out shot and they're all doing all this kind of very physical like uh ape like acting and everything and it's it's like really really well put together um on a kind of more personal note to Ryan and I, the bar where we had our first date had a film reel of like iconic moments from film and TV that would just play on a silent loop, like on a big projector in the bar. And I recognize this shot was in that loop. So I just think it's kind of nice that our uh, yeah. our kind of early relationship has a little uh, nod. little yeah. nod in this film. I was yeah. like that that. Or, 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 or kind of nice. Or this relationship, uh, or our relationship has a nod to this film. Either oh, or. either way. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of more generally about this whole, um, this whole movement as well. Um, oh my God, I love the fact that they've got like the, the set design is really cool for one, but also the fact that they've got tapers and an actual like it. I couldn't tell if it was a leopard. Uh, it's a jaguar. Yeah. Or, Regardless, I f- love the fact that they used live animals on set. Yeah, that, I did that write w- about that yeah, as well. That was really cool, and appa- I do. Uh, I remember reading that apparently one of the uh, one of the actors actually got bit by the jaguar. Oh no! Um, because they were trying to coax it towards one of the tapers, but it went for the actor themselves. The actor was fine, didn't actually get hurt, but still, really scary. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah. But a- apart from that, like, I love the fact that, like, you can tell that, like, because Kubrick was afraid of flying, I I know that they didn't go down to, um, they didn't want to have to go to, all the way down to Africa to, to film this. So they ended up just in a large um, soundstage. They just, like, effectively projected uh, photos of Africa onto the wall, but did, did it in a way that you didn't get the shadows. I thought that was absolutely like like just the practical like logic of, of sorting that out to make that work is awesome and it like it really makes you think like how technical this whole film was just yeah. from it just from even this bit which apparently this is the last portion of the film that they actually filmed oh interesting like i i've never understood that it's like if you surely if you can shoot it in order you should but uh who knows i don't know anything about filmmaking um, so yeah, I guess our like kind of main take home, uh, or at least my main take homes from movement one, um, is that like kind of from a technological standpoint, it's, it's, you know, it's evocative, it's interesting. It's kind of, 
while not maybe I wouldn't say like gripping, it raises enough questions to hold your interest. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I have issues with the what 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 story you can thread together from this is uh, is deeply flawed, and I just have issues with anyone that just goes, oh no, all of early humans were aggressive, and let's not explore any other possibilities to this yeah but at the same time that is also like it's a it's a product of the time you know yeah i know yeah. but but um, still <laughs> uh before we move on to the next movement let's talk about the jump cut that uh kubrick did to, for uh into the next movement yeah my um, note for that is literally just oh now we're in space yeah <laughs> Uh, the uh the ape the ape man I'm uh, I'm not gonna call it a hominid because it's, it's an ape man yeah the when the ape man throws up um the bone and you get that jump cut to effectively a satellite in space like that covers millions of years in one quick shot that's that's insane that's like I cannot believe how you can show the passage the passage of that man of time and that quickly it, it sets up the whole whole rest of the the movie yeah that's i guess what um i was i was sort of getting at earlier where he's like oh this monolith and this story is even though the reasons why will not become clear yet span millennia that this all started to the from the dawn of time it's um a metaphor you can boil down to tool use it's like without the first you know hand axe we wouldn't have the first spaceship and encapsulating that into that one single split second shot was yeah it's 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 artistry it really is yeah i mean and you can see how that has that just that jump shot has influenced so many other films like star wars and it's it's so so good yeah no it's it's really really like creative filmmaking oh man interesting fact about that jump cut is when you when it pans to the earth apparently that was done on a bit of round glass that they just painted uh, they painted uh, in a very special way but it like they this is before uh man had went had stepped on the moon they managed yeah. to do something that actually really really looked like a external shot from space and that was really cool yeah that was one of my main things that i loved about this movement was um Again, the story for me is is quite flimsy, let's say. And it yeah, I mean, I know it's designed to raise more questions than answers, but maybe that's just not how I enjoy watching films. I don't know. But the thing that I loved was the use of kind of music plus movement plus geometry, and all of this is using models and lights and backdrops and it it comes together to be it is again, it's 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 artistry. It's absolutely gorgeous to watch and also when you're watching it while keeping in your head how it was made it's it's jaw-dropping it really is well and the camera movement in this film a lot uh, like is so so groundbreaking for the time as well like like when as you're moving through space as the uh ship the pan am ship is going through space its movement is so well timed and you can tell that it was done in a way that really, really was careful, was so, so, so careful on, like, you're never once taken out of the illusion. You're always yeah. kept in space. You're like, wow, how did they do this? Like, like you're immersed. You're completely immersed. And um, because I was watching this, obviously, for the first time with a view to, you know, insights for the podcast, I uh, was looking for tells and giveaways and anything that would, you know, 
break the illusion and there there's nothing <laughs> there's like to my kind of single viewing i didn't see anything and it it really was great yeah i mean kind of moving on a bit more from just the visuals um i love how many like little little aspects of technology that are kind of that were very futuristic in the 19 uh, in 196 uh, 1968 are actually reflected now like the video phone that he used well, that that's like we uh, like every all of our cell phones now do do FaceTime or video calls when he's when um Dr. Haywood's going through passport control they've got the video passport control they've got they do that now as well the scene with um with the scene on the fl- on the flight the video small video screens uh on the seats those only came into popular use only in what like the last I 20 years kind of thing yeah those came only into use in about the last 20 years that's insane the fact that they were able to predict like well not predict but influence culture like it's kind of in, like you can't disentangle like how much this this film influenced technology and how much uh technology influences film it's 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 disentangleable yeah um that was something like very similar to that is is the thing that i i mean you said to get away from the visuals but for me again because i couldn't really find a lot to talk about in the story and that's where my main criticism of this film comes from i have a lot to say about the visuals, so i'm gonna go back to this because it is related to the um the chat about technology the the aesthetic in the inside the spaceship as well was very um it's basically what we see in almost every subsequent space movie that features sort of passenger travel in that way and the film that i'm going to reference here specifically is passengers which only came out you know in the last five years we will be covering on the podcast um much much later but um, the aesthetic inside the ship is so similar. And I wonder if that's because has our view on what like an interstellar future for passengers would look like just not changed? Or is this film just that influential? Or is Passengers and other films like it doing a deliberate homage to this film because it is so quintessential and so important in cinema? It's It's kind of all three of those things like working together to mean like, the interiors of spaceships because we don't have much of a real kind of analog especially we don't have any real analog for like passenger ships or in the kind of interstellar travel that that looks like what would that would look like um they just use other films and so this is where that kind of aesthetic starts and it's is which is really interesting to me yeah yeah i i i completely agree like it, it this film i think has set out pretty much a lot of the the, the set pieces it's really kind of set the groundwork for what we envision space travel to be like in the future, st- even now, still. Kind of, this kind of, I've got a point that kind of is somewhat related to the story. Yeah, go for um, it. Have you, no- did you notice like how like aspects of this movement and the next kind of infantilize humans in a way? Like um, the fact that when he's going to the moon from the uh he's going to the moon to go to the star base he's like all the food that they've got is kind of either not really solid food it's just kind of food that you kind of either can just like it's all mush effectively 
and the fact that he's having to read on how to use a toilet i just kind of made thought it kind of infantilized them a bit well that's a really interesting point actually because i think if you look at it from that perspective it could be a very like clever point about um how in this instance humans are dealing with something that is far bigger than they are but they are just completely unaware of that because they're shielded by all this technology however looking at it another way man landed on the moon a year after this film was released the things that astronauts would be learning would be somewhere in the public zeitgeist at this point the yeah. fact that space food is you know like dehydrated or it's pureed um and the fact that space toilets are kind of i know that's become more of a meme in recent years like astronauts talking about space toilets and things um but things like that would be have been something that Kubrick could have easily got his hands on would be like, oh, astronauts have to learn specifically how to use a toilet and, oh, space food is is different to regular food. So I don't know if that's a, this is what space travel is like or a human or children. It could be, it could be a little bit of each. Yeah, I can definitely see what you mean. Another kind of cool part of this whole movement, I thought, was the fact that it kind of, it when this film came out, it was still at a point when the U.S. was very, very still tense with Russia. The fact that they actually had Russian, like, they showed Russian and American cooperation, and the fact that they also had doctors who were women as well that I thought was really cool and really progressive. Yeah, I wrote that down. Um, there's. However, that being said, the secretaries and the serving people are all still female. So women are still in their traditionally assigned roles, but all three of the doctors he meets, um, save for one, were, well, no, there's, there's three female doctors. There are three female doctors. There was another man there, but of the oh, yeah, five right. of them, yeah, yeah. the three doctors were all female, which, um, so what's what I like about that is that that shows like Kubrick's vision of the future was feminist. And yeah. that's or to a, to a point um so he like he could maybe envision a future even in 1968 where you know women could be space doctors which for 1968 is pretty good going although i would have to point out there are no people of color in this film oh I've... so the future is is good for women but only if everyone is white i yeah I, uh, I i can't defend uh it, it's yeah whitewashed casting but you know it's still it's still very very important it's an important piece of cinema oh yeah for sure so in this little conversation they have at their kind of table there we get a lot of exposition on the plot and some you know foreshadowing for all the things that kind of go wrong later yeah and um <laughs> going back to the uh to the toilet the guy who uh he's reading the instructions he has a very stressed look on his face and it's like yeah i yeah, buddy, I'd be feeling just as stressed about using an anti-gravity toilet. Yeah. Um. So, because there's there's not a huge amount of dialogue. A lot of the story is told through visual action, mediums. visual medium, and the expressions on people's faces. Um. And yeah, so that's kind of that's all I can really see say about the kind of story as far as 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 far as this kind of yeah. small scene goes. Um. Uh, kind of moving us along to the next movement. Um. One thing that I really liked about the scene where they're on the moon, kind of it, like looking at the newly rediscovered monolith, the use of light in the shot that just completely disorients you as soon as the um, as soon as the sound starts emanating from the monolith, and the way that that was kind of used to kind of drag you into the Jupiter missions, uh, which is the next movement. 
Yeah, I mean, I do want to kind of revisit. There's a couple of really, really interesting bits kind of in the run up to that. So there's the shuttle that they take to go and look at the monolith. Um, had so all the characters were in kind of grayscale and then in the pilot's um, kind of pod they have it's completely red and then outside the windows there's like a more interesting kind of like light and colour going on so there's like quite an evocative visual of these kind of all these people in this kind of grey space surrounded by all this like colour and everything else going on which I, th- I thought was quite cool um, but yeah the thing I enjoyed about the, the reappearance of the scary door was that it's space archaeology Ryan our profession has a place in the future well I mean it's also a place in the future now as well like what well space archaeology is a thing NASA has a few archaeologists on their payroll what yeah. I did not know that yeah they, they, they have to consider the archaeological implications of what um, of everything they shoot into space huh yeah fair enough um the yeah, more so... you know <laughs> yeah I, I got a, I did get a little confused here because right before so the transition into the next movement is a um it's a flash forward to 18 months later um but right before that so the scary door makes its reappearance and I was a bit confused and remain confused. So were the apes in space? Is the scary door where it was when we first saw it or has it moved? No. Okay, that answers that then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the um the transition to the next movement is a flash forward to 18 months later where I would <sighs> I had to I wanted to know what was going on. They left it it's like it's a mid movie cliffhanger. Yeah, I I'm pretty sure Kubrick did that to kind of make you still be a little bit discombobulated and be a little bit more... Like, I don't think you're really supposed to be knowing what's going on. I, th- I think this whole film is meant to really... is meant to disorient you. Yeah. No, and I, I, I kind of get that. I kind of get it. Um, I'm not saying I need, like, a linear self-explanatory plot in every film that I watch... And I did definitely enjoy my viewing experience of this movie, but I, d- I do prefer a little bit more of an effort to thread the story together rather than be like, I'm going to keep them guessing because it's more interesting. Like, no, just tell me what's happening. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't really think uh, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, book was all that really... I don't think it had... It was. Ugh, I don't remember it being the, all that predicated on that much of a story, so I do think it... it, it it's being done to make it be a little bit more cerebral, I guess. I, I, I really don't know. But I will say that this movement is by far the most expositional in terms of uh, not only character development, but like I feel like you actually get a little bit more familiar with not only the human characters, but Hal. I feel like... Mm, you definitely I, I, get more story here. Well, yeah, I, I think out of everybody, Hal has the most character exposition and character emotional like it it seems like he's got more emotional uh, range than the act than the actors do in this Uh, but i Mm. i I think that's purposeful to kind of really humanize technology but dehumanize humanity yeah well i i wouldn't say dehumanize but again it's going back to the point you made earlier about um the kind of end this the lengths this film goes to to infantilize humans in um the lengths this film goes to to infantilize humans by making this everything that's going on around them so big 
that they are just ill-equipped to deal with it but they don't realize because they've got all this technology to protect them and i think hal is like a kind of end result of that and so it's kind of man has invented machine but now machine is to destroy man because machine knows better yeah i can see that and it's yeah it's quite uh it's a very interesting kind of thought experiment that and it's like it's definitely one of those things that sparked like man's fascination with ai you know how's one of the original like ais in popular culture yeah i i would also say that i think it's also meant uh, it's trying to show that like technology can be can have error just as much as humans you know yeah and with hell kind of being capable of 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 those issues that like those errors that that humanity is capable of i kind of thought that did really well to kind of contextualize like what could be problematic in the future and kind of what could be i i I kind of really thought it made me think about technology's role in our day-to-day lives and like how we're so reliant on everything uh, technology uh, functioning as it's supposed to Mm, and it's almost like kubrick foresaw that way back 50 over 50 years ago now yeah absolutely well or more to the point the person who wrote the uh, source material than kubrick but still um yeah and i think that's kind of hammered home by the use of camera angles uh, because it's like they are so reliant on Hal. They, they'll they talk to him without even looking at him, but he's always in the background of almost every shot in the... Yeah. And in, in, the, in the spaceship, kind of, in this whole scene. He's in the background of every shot. There are some things um, like that you don't really see the astronauts interact with each other. They're playing chess with Hal. They're talking to Hal. They're asking for Hal's... Uh, like opinion and help before they ask their comrades which I thought was quite an interesting again it's about the reliance on technology and the affirmation that technology will function correctly and act in man's best interests yeah but I do want to about the point about functioning correctly it is again and in this film is full of these interesting kind of discussion points and thought experiments because at this point Hal is functioning correctly Hal is doing the mission to the most efficient point and has identified the human element as a danger and is therefore efficiently taking care of that. So it's it's not necessarily even about it's it's this is is Hal malfunctioning? Can you even say Hal is malfunctioning at this point? Well, I I do th- I do th- remember them saying that he's not supposed to harm human life that was put into his programming i think i remember them saying that so i would say from that from that aspect he is malfunctioning and also like when he sets the 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 radio transmitter to fail i would say that's a malfunction but again i don't think it says at any point that he's um you know um you know the, the laws of robotics aren't in this film like there's no, I don't think at any point they say that Hal can't harm humans. But again, he's he's doing the mission as efficiently as possible. He's jamming the radio so that they can't, in you know his perception, jeopardize the mission. Asimov's three laws of robotics were probably not really in the thoughts of Arthur C. Clarke, maybe, or, or Kubrick. But um, yeah, I I still think that this whole movement really hum- uh, humanizes technology mm. by far. And I will say there's aspects of this whole movement that also mirror or the uh, scene, the, the, the Dawn of Man scene, especially. Ooh, interesting. I didn't like, really notice that. Like, you... You, you remember in the Dawn of Man scene um, when they uh, when the two ape tribes are fighting over the water? 
Yeah. I kind of saw a similarity or kind of a, a mirroring of that when um, Dave was trying to get into it. Uh, Dave was trying to get back into the ship and trying to, they were kind of fighting over that initial entry point into the ship when he was trying to get back in. I, I thought that that was kind of a really like very nice symmetry overall in this, in the story. Yeah. And it does kind of feel like it, like, you know, Kubrick, nothing is, is inconsequential. He is very, very particular about what he shows. And I think that that really was stroke of master masterwork and yeah, genius a deliberate parallel of the you know even though we have all this technology around us we're still no better than um apes bashing each other with bones yeah and that's and, an interesting look at that and the use of symmetry and 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 so many of the interior shots um is so so good and the the fact that most of the scenes in the ship also rely heavily on kind of like um forced perspective in a way kind of like showing how small the ship is Mm. is really cool um the only issue that i took with this whole movement was how the hell can hal read lips like that's kind of surprising i could see how hal being able to read lips would be good for accessibility for people who are not able to hear he could turn it into braille or something like that that might be good but like i don't really buy him being able to just don't think it's an accessibility thing i don't think it's the case that he's been programmed to be able to read lips because then surely that would have been in the user manual or something yeah i think a lot of like this is me conjecturing and applying what i limitedly know about modern technology to a non-existent robot man um i would assume that if you were to create a device like hal and you wanted him to have the knowledge um that he has at this point in the future, it's like um, it's like in Wally when he's learning about um, he's trying to learn what Earth was like, and it's a lot of it's coming to him through videos. The Hal's knowledge bank is probably because they've downloaded a ton of videos, and he'll have things built into his programming that allow him to read human facial expressions. And I think that that all coming together, he's like watched enough videos, has learned what facial movements equate to what sounds and it's just in his programming at this point yeah yeah i, I think I, that I, yeah. I i i can i can see that but it's, i guess that was the bit that was kind of a bit i still found a little bit weird i love um kind of moving over towards the visuals a bit more mm. i love the use of color in this uh, in this whole movement with um in terms of like the spacesuits being one of the most colorful things and Hal's Hal's uh, eye being so colorful. Yeah. That was beautiful and it, it's so so like he, like Cubic shows like everything in the ship being white other than those very few things. The, the, yeah, the things either that black are, or white are, are, or screens. Are, yeah. It 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 shows that it's been a very lonely experience but with this that color it it really it really highlights the danger and the and the um and just the whole emotion of what's going on yeah yeah for sure no and also it goes back to what i was saying earlier it contributes to hal's kind of omnipresence on this ship it's this very stark red eye over the shoulder of everybody who is on this ship yeah i found it really really interesting um yeah the um so frank the the base man with the yellow suit um yeah frank Paul. so he's uh he's hal's first victim obviously and his death is very very tragic but the, i'm not gonna lie the visual is really funny 
there's like it's from inside the camera's inside the ship and there's just a small porthole and he just kind of cartwheels past it in his little yellow spacesuit well, and it just looks so he's ridiculous kind of flailing. yeah i know and i feel bad but he because it's very sad you know tragic death in the in the vacuum of space but he just flails past the window in his little cartwheel and it just oh jesus it's very funny i mean yeah the, the, it was a stroke of genius on Hal's part to get him to get out there and then and then uh yeah and then dave going after him just yeah you know. well you know man creates machine machine outsmarts man women is left to inherit the earth <laughs> oh that's jurassic park we will be covering that in a long while under jay but <laughs> we'll get Still there good. we'll get there i think the one scene that really stands out to me and uh in this in this uh movement is the uh dave shutting down oh uh, yeah uh, uh how yeah. that Fantastic is so so scene. beautiful yeah i think this is the most emotive scene in the whole film with how when hal's slowly kind of losing his mind yeah and he's he expresses fear he expresses um more human emotions that have been shown in than in, in the last two sections yeah so it's it's really really cool and really, really, I think this is almost where it really, really immerses you. The film immerses you most. Oh, God, yeah, you're right yeah. in that. It's it's the combination of the kind of very close up. The camera's very close to Dave's face, very close to kind of what he's interacting with at this point. You've just got the only sound you're getting from him at first when Hal is still kind of, you know, all together. You've just got this very, like, simple but malevolent dialogue. And then you've just got this heavy, panicked breathing from Dave. And, and it, the hissing. And the yeah, the hissing as he slowly kind of undoes undoes these these things to start like destroying, which again is something that's been uh, referenced countless times. Yeah. Um, to start kind of taking Hal's mind apart, and it goes again. Like I'm gonna keep going back to this point you made about man being infantilized by the situation of this film, because the way as Hal kind of slowly unravels, the way that Dave then starts talking, as soon as he realises he's going to win because Hal is starting to make less and less sense, is starting to talk less and less malevolently, Dave starts the stops with the panicked breathing and starts just talking back to Hal and saying, oh, you know, sing me a song and all this stuff. Yeah. He's talking to Hal like Hal's a child. Yeah, exactly. It, it's it, That's where the reversal of roles really happens. And that, yeah. that's... Like, that's really cool. Yeah, and it's a really interesting I, kind of full circle sort of element to it. I think this is a really good segue into the next section as well, because like it, like I would say that the next movement is a complete reversal of roles for Dave as well, because it, it, it yeah. Um, you okay with moving on? I just want to quickly do a shout out to Hal as possibly sci-fi's most iconic character, even though he doesn't have a face. Like, yeah. one of the most iconic things in sci-fi... There are so many references in popular culture. I mean, cartoons do it for, like, comedic reasons. It's in The Simpsons, which is one of the kind of biggest cultural phenomenons of our of our time. It's in Futurama. It's in South Park. It's in various other sci-fi movies. You have characters in sitcoms saying, I'm afraid I can't do that, Dave. You know, doing the impersonation. It's even it in is, Looney Tunes. Yeah, it's in Looney Tunes. It's so it's so firmly in the public and cultural zeitgeist that no, Hal is yeah. It's, it's, Fifty it's, years on, Hal is iconic. Yeah, it's 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 practically ubiquitous in in and the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, um, Hal. This this movement is my favorite part of this film, and yeah. it's what kind of kept me watching. Like I couldn't have put up with 
two movements similar to the like another two movements similar to the first two like if it had not done this and had gone straight to the fourth movement i would not like this film at all but it it's kind of tense it's got elements of like horror it's it's exciting it has this it's a villain that you can't physically grapple and deal with there's there's one physical way of dealing with it but other than that it, it can stop you at every turn and it can kill you in numerous ways and it was this whole new idea of a villain yeah. for 1968 and it's you know the fact that it's lasted so well in popular culture is just you know, outstanding outstanding yeah. mind-blowing it's yeah i think yeah. hal is great I'm, um, I'm a big fan of hal yeah kind of uh again moving to the next section i i do th- uh, the max movement the, it really does highlight how this film is in effect and sorry in, in a manner a musical mass it's it's just it's just a musical piece it's just a musical and visual song and that's really like really highlighted like the whole third movement is the the climax of the song yeah but the the fourth and final movement, I will say, is the uh, the one that is most God uh, most subjective because it, there's so many ways to read the him blasting th- uh, like blasting through a, 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 what I assume is a wormhole and going through you know, like you're, you're treated to a good like nearly ten minutes, which is a little bit too long of just seeing colors and just seeing like disorienting um images on the screen yeah uh, very 1960s psychedelics <laughs> yeah but it, i mean for the time i can understand how that would be so prescient and so all-engrossing impressive and yeah very very impressive um so i can understand why kubrick put it into the film but it was a bit long yeah but th- it's very much a look at all of the things i can do with this color and light yeah and they wanted to put as much of it in as possible to showcase all of these wonderful techniques that they've mastered. Yeah. But it was it was so it dragged. It yeah. really dragged. As soon as Dave is finally out of that um, that psychedelic trip, I don't know else what, <laughs> way of putting it. Tripping in space. You're immediately kind of thrust right into this weirdly baroque green room. Yeah, the contrast is really interesting, but kind of just. Again, to just nip back, we're, we're saying, oh, that, that colorscape kind of thing lasted a bit too long. But clearly it's made an impression on, on cinema because, you know, you've got the film Contact where they do a very similar kind of warping through all of these colors. And, yeah. in, you know, the little spaceship by herself. And it's very much a similar kind of intensity to that. And even Star Wars, you know, the visuals of like hyper hyperspace like are linked to their yeah. taking their cues from this film. It's mind-boggling it's like so this film is has is everywhere you know yeah i i I can definitely see how culturally significant this portion is but yeah yeah it's it's, it it, it still lasted a little bit too long yeah but then as you're saying to then juxtapose that kind of very spacey very psychedelic very intense with all of a sudden you're in this as you say very baroque the green is deliberately that that color is used in kind of hospitals and schools and stuff because it's meant to be calming you're in this kind of very calming space with very little sound i think that's a really see from what i've read um about kubrick and the way he uses color he the whole the reason why everything is so green in that room mm. is also kind of because spoiler dave dies at the end you know yeah uh, 
he uses it like if uh, like in a lot of other, his other films, green is meant to be kind of a naturalistic color for him in a, in a way that he uh, like it's meant to symbolize either transformation or a, a change of a change of a change of in, in, in a point of life. So death, birth, uh, like other like um, change, uh, like growing up and becoming an adult. Like you see that in a lot of his other films. I think it can mean all of those things. Um, because, yeah, like, obviously green is very much associated with, like, the natural world and things like this, but it's this specific shade of green that's this, meant to be this very calming colour. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, the last movement, the use of ca- the camera angles and, and, uh, perspective is absolutely masterfully done, and it, he does so well to, again kind of um discombobulate you a bit so you're always kind of kind of guessing what whose perspective you're seeing yeah and it's deeply deep uh, disconcerting when you first see it it's like it it does i personally felt very physically jarred the first time i saw it because i just was like wait what am i seeing who am i seeing like what's going on yeah, I thought that was really, really interesting as well because in every every time the kind of camera cuts to a slightly older Dave, f- there's two of them in every shot. You're going kind of from over his shoulder looking at his future self and this happens. And uh, I thought that was really, really like cool, really good. But Masterfully done. We've gone on throughout this podcast, throughout this episode, saying how this film is the precursor to so many things in science fiction. However, this movement specifically is very Twilight Zone. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's very Twilight Zone. And, you know, the, most of the, like, a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes came from before this. And so even this kind of big, iconic first, so many firsts in this film, you know, the influence comes from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. But I, I can definitely, definitely agree with you there. Even the use of Baroque architecture yeah. and stuff is very Twilight Zone. Kind of going back to the whole movement, uh, like c- camera perspective, you're actually kind of made to believe you're the monolith at one point. And that, that, like, that shot where it just goes from Dave looking up to the monolith and then you're... The camera's looking d- down. Down at Dave and then a star baby, which still super, super weird, but I can very see... Very weird. I think it's supposed to represent humanity kind of being reborn and being a bit more wise. Like that's yeah, kind of the way I took it. Possibly. But that sequence is so so good, and I cannot believe how like the force the for uh, the uh, the fourth movement is amazing from a cinematic and kind of perspective point of view. Yeah. No. And but it's dense. But what I was I guess kind of grateful for is that it it goes in, it makes the points it wants to make, it uses a combination of kind of music, sound, and visuals to do so, but it is not overly long. They could have dragged that scene out for another, you know, 10 minutes, but they didn't, and I'm thankful for that, because if a film wants to make a cerebral point, I don't begrudge it, that cerebral point. I just am not entertained when they dally over it. But no, that, that scene for me... It was, as I said earlier, it's the scene that I like the least in this movie. It's it's kind of, it's, it's not very spacey and sci-fi, which are the things that I like. And it's, it's this very weird kind of doesn't explain itself too well kind of thing. And I know that's the whole point of that scene, but it's just my personal like enjoyment factor. But I do like 
the kind of contrast of there's long silences and very selective sound inclusion. So you've got, you can very clearly hear Dave breathing, but when he moves his chair back from the table, the chair makes no sound. And then kind of comparing that with the scene then being flooded with classical music, bringing us kind of full circle. You've got the return of the monolith and the classical music from the beginning of the film, kind of after this period of just silence and all of these, this kind of story that you almost have to write yourself in complete silence. It's it's a really, really interesting and kind of beautiful way to end the film. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I remember... Uh, when we finished it you were a bit like wait that's it like you're like oh yeah what the hell did i just watch like (laughs) it 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 is a very very immersive and really subjective film and i really really love that about it and frankly i'm i'm so glad that we uh, that i've got it on dvd to begin with like oh yeah yeah um with all that said and done and after we've discussed all this how would you rate this film again uh i'd probably rate it like still like a seven i mean i know that it is this iconic film and i have said a lot of positive things about it but i I still think a seven is a pretty high score out of 10 and it's i'm glad i watched it and i feel like i learned a lot especially kind of about like the origins of sci-fi and where a lot of the kind of aesthetics and homages and stuff of my favorite films have come from and it's really interesting to see that kind of origin point but again I just prefer more of a story like I am a sucker for the classic hero's journey and this film doesn't really have that but I mean at least five of my seven points go to Hal specifically and I I just I love the visuals I love the the use of music um but I I prefer a little more kind of story and, and characterization to my to my films um and the only character we kind of get even remotely fleshed out is is Ow. Hal yeah. and is like you said I was very much what the hell at the end I wanted some kind of explanation to what had just happened yeah. and that was like it was something that kind of bummed me out I'm like okay yeah it's a film where you're meant to kind of fill in the blanks for yourself and interpret it your own way because at the end of the day it's Every, every film is a work of art, but this one, even more so, I think. It's a combination of a visual, like, almost like a moving kind of painting and this piece of music. And so it's very much sees itself as art. And as art, I really liked it. As a story, not so much. Yeah, yeah, I get that um, for the most part. However, I do kind of understand and i do really really like kind of the interpretive aspect and i like the fact that you kind of get like this is one of the only films that actually is really like this that i can think of and i really really appreciate that and that's why i'm gonna go with a little bit of a higher rating than i came in with it i'm gonna go for i'm gonna give it a a solid nine (laughs) fair enough Um, fair enough but yeah uh, this is much more of a you film than a me film yeah well that's uh, uh that's it for us um this week but uh next week we'll be covering another of kubrick's films by coincidence of it being in alphabetical order yes uh, as far as our dvd shelf goes we're going to be covering a clockwork orange which is very 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 
I would say... We have some thoughts on it. (laughs) Yeah. I was more thinking controversial just in the cultural zeitgeist regardless, but... Oh, for sure. Um, Yeah. See you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Music was Potato Deal by Craig MacArthur. The photo used for our cover is by Rodolfo Clicks. Audio editings by Ryan DeRoges, and this podcast was produced by Laura and Ryan DeRoges. Find us on Twitter at All's Fair Podcast, on Instagram at All's Fair and Love and Film, or email us at All's Fair and Love and Film at gmail.com. <laughs>